president seems not to understand the fundamentals of American governance, right? That we have a federal government that is by design messy. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined here by David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Who's Obama? Well, we may get to that later. And Keith Johnson, FP's deputy managing editor for News and calling in from Berlin is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. ER nerds, have you got a topic you'd like to cover? Some personal problem you want to share with us via Twitter? Drop us a line, send us a tweet. Who knows? We may send you a mug. And we're actually working on sweatshirts now. Wait till you see what we're working on. They are super classy. Our, You're our doing e- one in German out there for no, Corey? No, no, no. We're doing the deep state sweatshirts, like college sweatshirts. Before we get into this, Corey, are you wait, out there with wait, Ivanka? Wait, slow down. Slow down, okay? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, Corey, let me pick up on David's question. Are you now part of Ivanka's entourage? (laughs) Yes, because I really think being born on third base is the way to advance women's empowerment. I think everybody ought to have daddy and be able to set up their own company rather than, you know, slog their way to professional competence. Corey, you are onto something. If every woman were born rich, women's empowerment would take a big step forward. It really would. Although following sort of the trends trends of, of, of history, if every woman were born rich, we would end up with high taxes and people, you know, turning against the rich. <laughs> you may be right. Well, it, while I was not at the uh, at the women's summit that Ivanka Trump spoke at, the photograph was, you know, disheartening to see the German chancellor, Angela Merkel, to see the head of the IMF, Christiane Lagarde, and to see the special assistant to the president. Okay, well, first of all, you have just demoted her because she is an assistant to the president, and that gives her the same rank as the national security advisor. In fact, as I I believe is the case, the deputy national security advisor of the United States was part of her entourage and was in the audience while the princess of the United States was on stage. (laughs) How, How do the Germans react to all this? Well, you know, Europeans are um, have not quite reached the level of derision that they had towards George W. Bush. But I think that's only because they're genuinely much more frightened about Donald Trump's behavior and what it says about the United States that we elected him president. Well, I think it's a jangling time. Did anybody say anything about the Ivanka visit? Oh, German newspapers are full of stuff about the Ivanka visit. She got hissed and booed when she talked about how her father was a real supporter of women and families. Well, it depends on what you mean by supporter. He supports them from, you know, 
the best of... Ah, the end of the sentence. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. But do they feel that this says something about the new United States of America to have the princess on stage? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of Banana Republic jokes being made at America's expense right now. I have to say, though, it's it's hard not to just have to take it on board, right? Because what can we say? No, really, this isn't a family business grifting the United States taxpayer because it so clearly is. It so clearly is. Why doesn't the New York Times write about that, David? Well, because we're much more focused on why Corey is out there promoting the new Hoover Institution clothing and design <laughs> line, <laughs> you know, with those little pictures of Herbert Hoover that, you know, show up on the label. <laughs> <laughs> Herbert Hoover exactly. was one of the best commerce secretaries America ever had. Well, you know, I, as long as we're on the subject of women's empowerment, though, Herbert Hoover's Herbert Hoover was in one of the first graduating classes at Stanford, and so was his wife. She took a degree from Stanford in in mining. She was an engineer. So as was he, and a remarkable taste. painter. <laughs> you know. I didn't know we were going here today with the Hoover family, <laughs> Hoover family <laughs> if, background. If you want, David, I can describe to you hiking up to the Hoover camp in Virginia, which, as Howell Raines put it so wonderfully in his book, was where he went to plan the Great Depression. <laughs> it's a great fly fishing spot for any of you outside of uh, D.C. Wow. Wow, this is just... It may have been the biggest accomplishment of the Hoover administration. This is what, you know, <laughs> the entire world of these kind of Trump supporters thinks New York Times reporters do, is that they go out and they like fly fish and that <laughs> they hobnob with bankers while they're fly fishing and discuss abstruse academic theories. If you hobnobbed while you were fishing, you'd scare the fish. <laughs> Once you win a Pulitzer Prize, you get to go fly fishing any place you like, right? <laughs> Uh, I think I'm, I'm I literally think I'm off the hook there. <laughs> Keith <laughs> T- Tell me how it turns out when you you win that big Pulitzer Prize. Let me turn the subject here a little bit. Uh, we we had a story in in FP today was sort of uh, and yesterday about the end of foreign aid as we know it. You want to give us a little rundown on that, Keith? It was basically fleshing out something that uh, the budget director Mark Mulvaney had said back in March when presenting the the skinny budget for the Trump administration, which he said, this is a hard power budget. It's not a soft power budget. And what he meant by that was, you know, an extra $54 billion for the Pentagon and everyone else would take it on the chin. What the story that we had was a, was a detailed breakdown of how those cuts could be allocated inside state and especially within USAID. And the, uh, the upshot was uh, a lot of aid was just zeroed out, billions and billions in cuts. Uh, and the money that was still there was shifted from you know development funding, things like building schools and water treatment plants and early childhood education assistance, to economic support funds, which can be used for counterterrorism, military, narco training. There's there's a lot more flexibility and a lot rougher edge to ESF funding, and so it just sort of uh, it takes the money away, and that which is left is going to be used for other purposes. What do you think about that, Corey? You're, I think you're in Europe meeting with policy planners. You're a very, uh, you know, respected uh, academic analyst of how foreign policy works. Do you think it's a good idea to gut the budgets for aid, including aid that might be used to fight terrorists, or, or is it a bad idea? 
<laughs> I know you know my answer to that, David. It is a terrible idea. What we have seen over the course of the last 15 years or so is the migration into military channels, an enormous number of foreign policy responsibilities that ought to be civilian in nature. They're inherently civilian in nature. And they are integral to be able to fashion the kind of international order that's most beneficial to American interests. I don't buy the argument very often made by people in the State Department that if only they had more money, they would be awesome at their job because there are problems of the institutional culture that need to be solved. But it seems to me someday we should at least test the proposition that if you gave the State Department adequate resources, they could prove to be good at their job. We know that by cutting their budget by 30 percent, it is actually just going to force more stuff into military channels. But evidently, this administration is perfectly comfortable with that, including the Secretary of State. Well, the Secretary of State, I mean, I, I'm not even sure we have a Secretary of State. I've increasingly come to the conclusion that Rex Tillerson is an inflatable doll, <laughs> although not one that I can imagine anybody would want to buy for any purpose except perhaps HOV lane. HOV lane. Exactly, where, <laughs> exactly where I was going. Exactly where I was going with that. But you know what compounds it? I was on a little panel. We did a little panel for my class from Columbia, which came down to Washington yesterday, with the fabulous Rosa Brooks. Also on the panel, by the way, was uh, Susan Hennessy and uh, Ben Wittes, her colleague at Lawfare. And Rosa brought up the latest statistics of appointments for the national security side of things. And in the State Department, I think there's something like 110, 112 jobs that are to be filled by the White House, of which like two or three are filled. And in the Defense Department, there are like 53, of which one is filled. So it's not just that we're not funding this stuff. We're not actually manning the barricades. I mean, is there, you know, David, you know, you've been covering the U.S. government since you went fishing with Herbert Hoover. Um, (laughs) Do you recall, is there any precedent for this kind of rank incompetence? Well, first of all, you wildly overstated the number of confirmed positions at the uh, State Department that have been filled at this point because apart from Rex Tillerson and one holdover – from the Obama administration who didn't then have to, you know, require new Senate confirmation. There have been zero confirmations in the State Department and we are nearly in May. You know, this discussion of the foreign aid issue and the cut's not going to be 30 percent. I mean, you ask this question of Senator Corker and he sort of rolls his eyes and says, you know, they can propose anything they want. That's not going to happen. But what I think, I think there were two really notable things that came out of this initial skinny budget that he turned out. First, the discovery that if you are increasing the amount you are spending on national security, which the president says is his highest priority, he clearly does not view the State Department to be part of the national security infrastructure. If he did, it would be getting the kind of increases that the Defense Department is getting, that the intelligence agencies are getting. But instead, he views it in a very different way. The second thing is that Mr. Tillerson, as you pointed out, 
did not stand up and say, we are part of the national security infrastructure and we have to be thought of differently. Now, when you ask his staff about this, what they tell you is he's made the case quietly. But I think the case he has made is we can do a lot of cuts at the State Department, but just get out of my hair and let me do what I know how to do this from Exxon. And I have a little bit of sympathy for the fact that the State Department is basically structured the way it was structured in 1947. And I think we'd all agree that there's some significant reform that can go to that. But that does not explain why it is that you would basically cut out most of our sources of soft power. Yeah, I, I just for the record, I object to the use of the term soft power. I respect Joe Nye, who came up with the term soft power in 1990, by the way, a year before the advent of the internet, and which was seen as a big tool of it now. But power is power. Money is power. Culture is power. Here, here, and we create the environment in which cuts like this are possible when we suggest that one form of real power is less than another form of real I, power. I don't think it's less. I think it's just different. I mean, you know. It's just look, not soft. That's all it, I'm saying is if I give, if I don't feed you, you and I mean, just even saying that, your eyes narrowed to a squint. If yeah, I don't, yeah, don't, if feed, I don't feed you, <laughs> that's power. If I give you money, that's power. It's not soft power. It's real power. It's influence. It's what happens when you drop copies of FP in nations around the world and have people soak up its wisdom. That's that's a that's a, an excellent analogy. Fantastic product placement, David. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that, wasn't that good? Yeah, but the, particularly when your hard power is not something you want to use. Yeah. Right. So I, anyway, I, I, I guess the, con- I get the concept is to avoid having to use hard power. And if I was Rex Tillerson, I would sort of get out there and say, we're in the conflict avoidance business. And if you're the president and you want to go through with a campaign slogan of America first and make America great again, and let's not get involved in all these wars in the Middle East that have bled us, well, let's put some effort and funding into keeping the next war from the Middle East, in the Middle East from happening. Well, Keith, what's Brother Tillerson's problem? I think it's in a different approach, too, because this public diplomacy idea, uh, he he obviously doesn't embrace it. His his management style at ExxonMobil was very much to shun the press, to do things behind closed doors, to not give progress updates on negotiations. He said at the time when he first got in, and, and it's his people on his staff said the same thing, he does not want to be doing public signaling and public diplomacy for public consumption, whether for international audiences or for the U.S. audience, until his work is done. But that misses, I think, a lot of the point of what public diplomacy is and should be. But I, I hear I hear a statement coming in from <laughs> Berlin. Berlin, are you there? Please forgive me, Keith, for shouting under what you were saying. I was just pointing out that if Secretary Tillerson's metric of success is making no meaningful public signals. I believe he is succeeding at that. Well, I, I would, as, as somebody who is not riding on the back of his plane, I would certainly uh, agree with that. I also think it has a fundamental misunderstanding of how modern diplomacy works. If you go back to a deal they hate, the Iran deal, there was so much signaling in it because you not only had to bring along the allies— 
whose publics needed to be brought along on this. But you had some strong signaling you needed to do to the Iranians about what would and would not uh, happen. Rex Tillerson is accustomed to a much smaller kind of negotiation, maybe more big money, but it involves a lot fewer people. So the concept of signaling is sort of not there. But what really struck me— Also, by the way, does not involve public accountability. That's true. That's true, which explains why we're not on the plane. It struck me when uh, two weeks ago when we were in Moscow uh, with him at the uh, meeting where he uh, was dangled by uh, by Putin all day until Putin finally saw him, that in the end, the Russians did a much better job of explaining their strategic objectives to us than the group around Tillerson did. And at the end of the day, when you read the news coverage of meetings like that, the people who are going to get quoted the most are the people who actually move their lips. And uh, so (laughs) pro tip, everybody from a New York Times reporter. (laughs) So what they're going to discover is that they're basically not dominating the framing of the problem. They're not dominating. They're not involved in the framing of the problem. And I think this is one way in which the president's insecurity and kind of petty tyranny that the cabinet members have to manage internal to the Trump administration is actually really bad for American national security policy, because it looks to me like everybody in the national security cabinet doesn't want to make, well, except Nikki Haley, doesn't want to make- Who can be replaced. The president joked hilariously. In front of her UN Security Council counterparts. Beautiful. It's a bit- but, you know, what an asshole. Anyway, let's 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 move on. It was just his argument for trying to get Corey into the job. Yeah. <laughs> no, she signed the letter. Corey's not going to be the U.N. ambassador. She signed that letter. She's on the she's on the unrepentant of that view as well. As, and right. <laughs> right. Unrepentant Corey Shockey. But, you know, as, as I listen to you talk about this, Corey, one of the things that strikes me is, you know, we talk about gutting the foreign aid budget. We talk about not hiring people and the and not having a coherent message articulated by the Secretary of State. It's the same thing because the the Secretary of State's words and the words of his team are an important part of diplomacy and establishing American influence and power in the world. And you have the same effect by not funding a program as not filling a position as not making a speech. You know, the core foreign policy of the U.S. State Department right now is the absence of a foreign policy. It's a void. Keith? Yeah. No, I mean, if you if you think of a couple of the data points, because you mentioned the who gets to dominate the, the, the discourse, David, with in South Korea. And in the end, it may have been a little bit of a confusion. But for about 24 hours, what dominated the news cycle was the, the South Korean report that Rex was fatigued and had to cancel the dinner and after two days, he was cutting short the trip. And in the, there, was no, there was no U.S. press there. There was no U.S. press operation there to counter this. And so the narrative completely got out of hand. In the end, it was just a minor sort of detail. But that's another example of missing an action. But let me, uh, let me take the Seoul trip because I think it takes you to a, a, a bigger example of this and one that goes right to the current okay. North Korea. We'll all get on the Seoul train with you there. Well, uh, that's the D train. So, um, Corey, Corey is like Soul Train. I didn't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, the dinner 
kerfuffle was a kerfuffle. And there were reports. It's actually, David, it's a kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. It's not kerfuffle. It's Do you hear that, Corey? I have been stood corrected (laughs) once again. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a good thing. You wonder why it is. You wonder why it is that Rothkoff has got the job of running this august podcast. It's for interventions <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, I'm running the podcast. Hello, I'm the CEO of the FP podcast. in the now, ER. Which makes Maria terribly uncomfortable because she knows she's the CEO of the FP podcast. <laughs> now renamed from the ER to the kerfuffle the kerfuffle <laughs> yes yeah, exactly. which actually isn't a bad name for a no, for a podcast exactly. but um beyond the kerfuffle showing that i can actually learn something uh, along yes. the way here tillerson at that same press conference said that the united states would negotiate with north korea only after they gave up all of their missiles and their nuclear weapons I had been laboring until that time under the false impression that the purpose of the negotiation was to get North Korea to give up its missiles and its nuclear weapons. And in fact, it looks like from additional things that have been said from the White House and some of uh, State Department subordinates uh, to Mr. Tillerson, that in fact, the administration might consider entering into a negotiation if the North Koreans froze their systems and began to build down a little bit. But the fact that we don't know that by the end of April, at a time that the entire U.S. Senate is being corralled into the White House to get— It's actually happening today, today, isn't it, as as we're recording uh, this. Right, to to get a briefing. And Um, and they were never seen again, the beginning— (laughs) At <laughs> the beginning of a mystery novel where they put 100 senators in a room and replaced them all with Trump bots. Yeah. Well, it was it was sort of interesting yesterday because we had a lot of senators calling around trying to figure out what questions they wanted to ask. Well, also you had a lot of senators on the on the radio and, and, and television going, I don't know why we're doing this. We have a secure facility on the Hill. We know what's going on. What's the point of this meeting? David, you are a North Korea specialist. Do you, have you been in North Korea? I have. He's been in North Korea. Were you bar mitzvah in North Korea? They, they, it turns out that they, the ceremony is extremely expensive, expensive to hold there. Extremely yeah. expensive <laughs> and involves an anti-aircraft gun. Yeah. But, but, but anyway. I have I, not been invited back. By the way, since I was in North so, Korea, so I just I, you know I'm kind of enjoying this stream of consciousness <laughs> podcast here. What the fuck, man? Why are they putting all of these senators in a room? Okay, so I think what's going on here is a bit of hundred day theater, where by bringing the senators to their territory and probably my guess would be maybe having the president drop by and put all of these others there, they're trying to create an impression that they're bringing the Senate along for this incredibly complex process. I don't think that they are actually ready to talk much about a new and deep policy. In fact, when you look at the Trump policy about how to go deal with North Korea, the way it looks right now is a lot like the old Obama policy, which is every time they do something, we're going to ramp up sanctions and periodically we will bring around some military pressure as a demonstration. Which looks like the Bush policy, which looks like the Clinton policy. Uh, and, you know, the only new element to this has been, you know, ramping up the cyber program against against the missiles. Well, you know, we in FP, we say that didn't really happen. I read that in FP. One of our contributors, not a staff writer, 
essentially wrote an article which, as far as I could tell, was attacking you personally. You know, I, I figured he did it on your personal orders. <laughs> no, no, I was I was as surprised as you are. But Jeffrey Lewis wrote an article which said that your assertions that some of these missiles may have been falling from the sky because of a cyber program was a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Now, refute. Sure. So Jeff is right on one point, which is that we cannot assert, as we indicated in the original uh, story, that any individual flight test was undercut by a cyber or electronic warfare attack because there are so many things that can go wrong with a North Korean missile. They can have bad welding. They can have insider threats. They can have bad luck. We've blown up a lot of missiles in our program. Is it true their solid fuel rockets are based on kimchi as a vital ingredient? That's the secret propellant, but you've actually just disclosed a classified <laughs> detail. Yeah, sorry. Right. So where I think Jeff runs into uh, trouble is the question of why President Obama in early 2014 ordered an acceleration of this program and why the overall rates of failure then soared for the Musadon to 88%. When for all other tests of this weapon by others or similar designs, it's been about 14 percent. And uh, so the correlations are pretty high. Let's continue with David's theme here of 100 Days Theater. I kind of like that. Hi, welcome to 100 Days Theater. We're <laughs> you are a promoter of the arts, David. Yeah, no, no. I was, you know, I spent the first ten years of my career as a theater director. This is this is natural for me. Although I have what to. What do say, you mean the first ten years of your life? <laughs> thank you. Thank th- th- thank you. Thank you. So let me let me let me ask a question on a couple of other of random issues here. I'm just going to go around to some. This morning of this b- podcast, the president of the United States. Apparently waking up irritated that a court overturned his latest uh, Im- you know, immigration initiative, tweets the following. First, the Ninth Circuit rules against the ban. By the way, I thought it wasn't a ban, but apparently the president still thinks it's a ban. He should speak to his own staff. Now it hits again on sanctuary cities. Both ridiculous rulings. See you in the Supreme Court, exclamation point. And then it goes here, the Ninth Circuit, which has a terrible record of being overturned, close to 80 percent. They used to call this judge shopping, exclamation point, messy system. Corey, just as an objective observer sitting in her palatial suite in Berlin, what up with the president of the United States once again attacking the system of the United States, which he calls messy, the judiciary, and a ruling on a case which is going to be appealed in this way. Is this, are, are we blazing a new trail on the appropriate management of executive judiciary relations in the U.S.? No, I don't think we're blazing a new trail because as the Ninth Circuit's ruling on the sanctuary city business makes clear, the president is the president's public commentary on these issues is being weighed by courts themselves. And so I don't think he's blazing a new trail because he's these statements, these incendiary statements that he makes are actually um, damaging his ability to win these cases in courts. For me, the question is less, how will this play out in law? Because I think 
Jack Goldsmith had a terrific post at Lawfare, wow, several months ago now, suggesting that the president's behavior with cases in front of the court are actually going to make it harder for him to win them because he's not going to get the benefit of the doubt from judges. And they are going to feel the need to defend the integrity of the system. And I think that's what we see playing out right now. In, in fact, you're seeing some tweets and campaign statements, at least in the, uh, in the Muslim ban case, being cited by the judges as one of the reasons that they disbelieve the government's argument that this isn't really about banning Muslims because the president said it himself during his candidacy. And, you know, I, I don't remember these tweets from Donald Trump when judges struck down executive orders and some laws that Barack Obama signed. So, I mean, is the system messy? Yes. The designers of the system, the constitutional designers of the system, wanted to make it messy. Well, it was, I don't know if it was messy. I think they wanted to ensure that there was a balance of perspectives. And Donald Trump, I mean, look. That's called messy when you're Donald we're, Trump. We're here in 100 Days Theater, Keith. And one of the things that strikes us out of the first 100 days is that Donald Trump, I mean, first of all, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, somebody called me up for some radio interview this morning, and it was like, look, he has no experience. He's greedy. He's a narcissist. Um, what did you expect he was going to be like? This is exactly what you would expect of somebody with no experience who's a greedy narcissist. But there is a kind of a subtext here in attacking the judiciary, embracing CC, uh, sending congratulations to Erdogan, being too close to Putin – you know, which we've heard throughout, which is this guy's just sailing a little bit close to autocracy and authoritarianism. Is that um, is that an overstatement by Sanger-like liberal elites? Well, I mean, just go back for one moment to the to the court reactions, uh, because it's not just the president and it's not just tweets. The attorney general pointedly attacked some island in the middle of the Pacific that they had the audacity to challenge the president's policies, that island being a, a state, uh, Hawaii. Um, you know, so it's kind of – it's a systematic problem. It's not a, a personal problem uh, and I think it is by design. I mean you mentioned you know, the, the sissy relationship. This, this is a good example that came up yesterday. All of the Egypt hands were over in front of the Senate and Tom Malinowski in particular was telling senators that – the, the hug and the love fest with Sisi is sending a very damaging image around the rest of the world because okay, well, of what wait. it says about Tom Malinowski, rights. let's give a little background here. This is not an Egypt hand. No, but a, a democracy, human rights, labor, uh, you know, former human rights watch. But but he was there alongside a couple and, of And folks. worked in the Obama administration. And he worked in the Obama administration. No, no, he did. But yeah. I'm just saying there is a clear history. Yes, but he was, he was echoing sentiments that, you know, Michelle Dunn had also made and, and she had been around for decades through different administrations that the – the the same is with Erdogan. The the same is with Putin. There's a there's a comfort level it seems with leaders who attack the free press, like candidate Trump and President Trump have done, who spurn an independent judiciary, as he has repeatedly done. You know, who don't seem to they don't seem to accept or want to accept you know limits on presidential authority. I don't think that's an exaggeration, Corey. I think this is your opportunity to say, I agree with you completely. Keith. I agree with you completely, Keith. Why, thank you, Corey. <laughs> I don't think we've heard Corey say that with David at the end in some time, and certainly not on this broadcast. <laughs> certainly not since we had the mugs printed. It was, we, we memorialized that with a mug. 
You know, that was that was like we're not gonna we're not gonna let that go. Uh, can one more point on that? Um, no, but the, let's let Corey follow up on the thing before you get thing. your one more point. You know, okay. Corey, just do you want to elaborate on what Keith just said? Well, I actually want to hit a point that David Sanger brought up, which is that the president. Thank you, Corey. Seems, <laughs> the president seems not to understand the fundamentals of American governance, right? That we have a federal government that is by design messy. That is, it was created by people who distrusted the the unity of power in other governments. And the president is actually not proving very good at the fundamental executive challenge for a president of the United States, which is persuading people to reach a consensus that you can then legislate. Corey is absolutely right. Wow. And let me um, let me take you back for a moment to the case last night because the judge's order was sort of interesting. I'm not sure whether the president. I, mean, had I, I think you know. I'm, I'm thinking we should this. change the name of this podcast to East Eastern and Western Elites Agreeing with Each Other. Oh, okay. Um, so if you if you go into the judge's order last night, the one that the president viewed as sort of a liberal circuit and so forth, you'll discover that the case that he based it on was the case in which the courts ruled against President Obama's effort to to, uh, withhold Medicaid funding to force states to comply with Obamacare. And that that was the main precedent that the judge cited. I I didn't I, I must have missed it when they tweeted out in 2012 when that was handed down that this was a great overreach of court power over the executive. There's going to be a lot of tendency for people in doing these kind of hundred days analyses of Trump to sort of say, well, what's the positive stuff? And we did when we just had the episode yesterday. We were like, let's name the positive things. And there's, you know, there's a good list. No, but yeah. there's there's a I mean, yeah. The no thermonuclear war. That was good. And then I put that you know, as good. Corey, do you call that good? Absolutely. <laughs> and given that the president's about to convene, you know, the entirety of the Senate to have a briefing from the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense on North Korea, and is speaking about North Korea the way President Bush talked about Iraq before the 2003 war. We should be grateful for no thermonuclear war. Well, so but far. what you're saying is it's early days yet. Yes, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Take what you can get yeah, on the okay. on the early Trump, whose greatest success was not entering a thermonuclear war in his first hundred days in office. But you know there are other things. I mean, the guy and his team who apparently colluded with the Russians and accepted illegal payments, he ultimately got fired. That's a plus. The white supremacist nut job and his team ultimately got kicked off the National Security Council. That's a plus. Trump forgot the campaign advisors who colluded with the Russians and so probably um, was less influenced by them than if he remained close. Dropped the idea of a ridiculous currency war with the Chinese. Well, that's because they were manipulating before but not after. He he discovered NATO was was not obsolete. Had he he known, I'm sure, when when Maggie Haberman and I did those interviews with him that NATO wasn't obsolete, he probably wouldn't have gone on about that subject for so long. That's right. Did he actually pronounce – What you are missing is that according to the president – 
NATO didn't know anything about terrorism until he raised that issue. Well, that's so, like the Chinese were manipulating their currency until Trump arrived in office. And then, you know, he did learn from Xi Jinping that the comp- the situation with North Korea was complicated. It's healthcare level complicated. Korea was a province. Health- yeah, healthcare level. So that's that's a big plus. And the whole reversal of the one China policy was reversed again. That's a plus. Before it ever got fully reversed the first time. Yeah. Was this the list, by the way, yeah, that, that you were getting list, at? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those were the Those are the greatest hits of the you know, first hundred some, days. Sometimes the best things one can do in government is to avoid disasters. And you just put together a list of avoided disasters. Or aver- slightly, almost averted. Almost averted. You know, deferred. Exactly. Have I left something off this list of big hits here, Keith? Starting a trade war with Canada, I'm going to guess, would go in the negative pile, right? Depends on your views towards Canada. Right. Well, And, um, and softwood lumber. Right, softwood. Well, First I mean, of all, I want to say it's about time we stood up to those Canadians because, you know, we nearly taught them a lesson after the War of 1812 and then we forgot about it. True. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that was a check waiting to be cashed. Yeah. Well, and also, <laughs> let's pick on countries we can beat up. I mean, this is a country that actually has like a beaver on its currency. Well— you know, we did have the well. Actually, with Mexico is interesting too because the uh, the wall debate, which also the wall is another great victory, uh, yeah, big victory, the huge, huge to put in the list, huge, uh, huge. But what was interesting to follow in Mexico, and I think that the Times may have been the first with this story, and then we we have later, of course, the Times expanded. is the first with everything. Well, we expanded, of course, in our in our inimitable fashion. But uh, I, I remember their very first headline: "Big Bang takes place, promising for America." Women minorities suffer most. Women minorities suffer most. Um, <laughs> I thought David was going to actually cite a true headline in the New York Times after television was first shown at the 1936 uh, World's Fair. Uh, David remembers it well, I'm sure. And the headline read, commercial use in doubt. <laughs> well played. Uh, now. Nah. No, I was just with with Mexico. It's interesting that we've managed to revive uh, memories of the of the war more than a century and a half ago. And there's a there's a movement to actually reclaim Mexican territory that's been part of the United States for 160 years. That takes some doing. What is it they want? They want their land back. Which was which is like California? Well, California, New Mexico, Texas, the southern parts of Arizona. They, I think there's a 50 50 chance those places would go. I mean, well, I actually think I'm not sure about the Southwest parts, but I think there are parts of California that Trump would probably give them <laughs> before the next presidential election. Yeah, this was you know I was talking you you talked to my Columbia class the other day, and one of the things you said that I found subtly disturbing was you Only know one? the dis- well it was the discussion about the North Korean missiles being able to hit California, and you said something like now you know it depends on whether Trump sees any value to keeping California. Yeah. And I thought about it, and I can't imagine why he would. Yeah, I mean, California is like a thorn in his side. It'll never support him. It's actually a majority Latino state at this point. You know, we have two big anti-missile setups on the West Coast, one's in Alaska and one's in California. And as we reported last month, in uh, under perfect testing conditions, they work 44 percent of the time. So Trump's got the numbers with him here. Well, given that's the case, Corey, why are Palo Alto real estate prices so high? (laughs) Indeed, Palo Alto real estate prices are eye-popping because of all of those millennial savages who are recreating the world. Yeah, that's why, you know, everybody's complaining, why did you put Corey down the well? It's like, Corey actually lives in a well. That was all she could afford in Palo Alto. 
<laughs> so there are folks at the Stanford Law School teaching courses on effective ways the state of California can resist the federal government and the Trump administration. That's what's driving up property values. Well, that's good. I mean, that's this court decision. That's this court decision yesterday. So let me ask you a couple more quick items on news items, since we very rarely, but I'm kind of enjoying the fact that we get to do something sort of right in the middle of the news. But here we have a cyber expert, David Sanger, who actually teaches at Harvard University about these things, so it must be a cyber expert. And here's a headline from today's Haaretz, one of my favorite newspapers, because it reports on the gradual decline of democracy and uh, one of America's allies, you know, uh, Israel, which we could talk about, by the way, because they have really taken some amazing, shocking steps backwards. But it says here, in an unusual announcement, Israel reveals it thwarted major cyber attack. It doesn't actually say where the cyber attack came from or what the motives were behind it. But since you are at the New York Times, David, you must know that by now. So share with our listeners. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I can tell you that um, Israel gets cyber attacked all the time. And we have thought that some of them came from Iran during the time that Iran was also doing cyber attacks on the United States. But this article, which I saw briefly this morning, didn't give me enough detail and timing for us to know whether it was against commercial facilities, whether it was against the Israeli military. Uh, and it's a good thing they thwarted it because basically Israel has is turning its economy towards cyber defense by taking all the people who come out of the unit that did Stuxnet with the United States and, and others, military uh, a military unit, and as people leave the military, they have gone off and created a huge sub-industry of cyber defense. So it would be bad sales pitch if it turned out that got through. So let me turn to another news item of the day, Keith. The big news story right now this morning as we're recording this in Washington is a giant tax cut proposed by the White House, mostly tax cuts for corporations, big ones, but also interestingly for pass-through corporations, which real estate executives and companies benefit from. And I was just wondering, is this relevant to us as foreign policy nerds or is this exclusively a domestic issue? Well, I mean, if you're of the sort of the Paul Kennedy school where – economic and fiscal health and balanced budget over the long term, or, or at the very least, a sustainability of your debt problem over time is a direct determinant of your ability to project power, then you have to wonder the scoring that I've seen on even getting the corporate tax down to 20 percent leaves like a half a trillion dollar hole. Munchen is talking about uh, – Mnuchin. I'm sorry. Mnuchin is talking about needing 3 percent minimum for the growth to actually pay for the cut. So, you know, at a time when, when the, the, the debt was one of Trump's biggest talking points during the, the campaign, you know, for all of the arguments you can make about, yes, the, the American corporate tax rate is very high, this will actually be a way to increase the competitiveness of U.S. industry. It just seems odd for deficit and debt hawks to be taking an approach like this, or maybe not odd given the history of uh, Republican policymaking. I will be shocked if the debt hawks in Congress go for tax reform that's not revenue neutral. I, I think this is going to be an enormous split and it's going to hit – it's going to be a weird cleavage in Republican politics because the 
you know, the, the defense hawks, McCain, Graham, those guys, all the authorizers have for years wanted to repeal sequestration and they haven't changed a single vote among the appropriators. I think the place to watch this is whether the debt hawks on appropriations will agree to any of this stuff. And I bet my money they will not. And and I want to see where Donald Trump comes out of it. Because if you go back and look last year, he kept talking about how the national debt was on its way to $21 trillion and how awful this was. Every major interview you heard with him, uh, he started this way. So if you believe the sort of back of the envelope calculation about the cut in the business tax that he's proposing, that it would add over 10 years $7 trillion to that $21 trillion, it would be interesting to hear how they plan to go make it revenue neutral. Well, particularly since some of his you know, budget moves increase a lot of spending even beyond this. Um, he could actually go for the record. You know, he could do the most to upset, you know, increase the deficit of any president since Reagan in terms of, you know, percentage terms. And that would that would really be impressive. This is California economics after all, Corey. This is Reaganomics, trickle-down, Laffer curve, revisit it. It's, it's a really a journey back to the 1980s. Well, uh, maybe the federal government will want to adopt the inverse of the Trump tax plan, which is California's tax plan, very low property taxes and make all of your money on business taxes. Maybe. Although, you know. I don't see that coming for some reason. I don't see the right. (laughs) I, I, I don't see it coming. So let's circle back as we come to the end here. Corey, you were there in Berlin. You're meeting with policy planners, people looking at the future, what are they worried about? They're worried about almost everything about the Trump administration. The the erratic nature of his involvement in policies, the difficulty they have figuring out who speaks for the administration when anyone will speak for the administration, their desperate hope that that the axis of adults, the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, can actually deliver the president on things. The delicacy that has to be in evidence as the NATO Secretary General uh, diplomatically does not contradict the president when he says NATO is no longer obsolete because they've finally taken up my suggestion and gotten serious about terrorism. The only positive effect that I have heard any Europeans comment on about the Trump administration is they do believe it may have inoculated Europeans facing elections after ours about the effect of either casting a protest vote or not voting, because it, it, it says it's a cautionary tale for all of the Western democracies. Well, that's you know, unsettling. Um, Keith, as we look forward to the next 200 days or the next 100 days, what's the crisis that you expect is going to come and and bite us on the ass that we're not prepared for? Probably one that people aren't paying enough attention to is Venezuela for proximity and for the powder keg that you actually have down there in terms of uh, popular unrest, uh, you know, government crackdown, 
um, really abusive uh, security services, huge proliferation of weaponry, uh, sometimes heavy weaponry. Uh, a lot of people have described it as sort of the, the Libya of South America, but not as well put together. Which is kind of a, an arresting image, you know. Given that they've got you know inflation levels that are you know well beyond Zimbabwe, they have no toilet paper, no food, no work. Uh, oil prices are still low. There's a it was either the sixth or the eighth protester was killed this week. Uh, every day there's more escalation. You know, if something happens to bring the Maduro government down, there's going to be probably transborder refugee issues. There's going to be well, there were there were two million refugees in Colombia right. not too long ago. It was the biggest refugee problem in the world. Right. Where do those refugees go? Well, right now uh, they, there's not really much option for them to go back. I suppose they could try to find sanctuary in in Trump's America. Well, that's what happens. A lot are going to go to Central America. When they go to Central America, then they end up going. Uh, they often try to go up through Mexico into the United States. This is a time when we need Mexico as an important ally in managing this, and we seem to be alienating them. I'm, maybe I'm thinking two moves ahead. but Perhaps. No, I would say one thing, though, that the administration made some early noises that were encouraging to the Venezuelan opposition in a way that the Obama administration had not wanted to push very hard. Uh, there was a public uh, reception with some Venezuelan opposition officials in the, in the White House. Um, and there is the impression among some of the opposition that this administration might have their back a little bit more. We'll see if that actually bears out. My bet, and Corey or David, correct me if I'm wrong, my bet is this administration would have their back more and, in fact, would kind of have an appetite for getting involved. Uh, now, the the problem is there's no clear, strong leadership within the opposition uh, and the country is in really, really bad shape. But the collapse of Venezuela with the refugee crisis, one problem. The internal collapse is another. The impact on oil is another. There's also the impact on Cuba, which has been heavily dependent on Venezuela. So this is not a small issue and it has not really gotten a lot of attention. David, crisis – this is where we're wrapping up – crisis that you expect is going to come and bite us on the bottom over the next – period of the Trump administration. Okay. So uh, two I'll mention quickly. Turkey launched an attack yesterday that was completely not in coordination with everything else that we're doing in Syria. The State Department actually had to come out and condemn the activity. Uh, you had the oddity. It was, a, it was an attack on Iraq, right? Right. I mean, yes. Right. Uh, it, it was an attack on Iraq. It was not coordinated with the with the U.S. or with the U.S. forces and and operations. And the, the Iraqis there. weren't happy. And the Iraqis were deeply unhappy. And uh, the um, what we're seeing is the complete fraying apart of a NATO ally. And if you want a really interesting NATO question, the question is: How long do you keep Turkey inside NATO if it is? dismantling the major parts of its democracy and ignoring the military coordination that they're committed to. So that's number one. Number two, one we haven't looked at with North Korea. We're sitting there thinking, oh, are they going to throw their missiles at us? How are they going to go react to the Carl Vinson uh, if it ever gets up there uh, and so forth? You've Carl Vinson, which is on like a Caribbean cruise. At the they got to let all the tourists off first. Yeah. Um, the real interesting question in my mind is if you were North Korean and you were sitting around trying to figure out how to take it out on the United States and all of this, you'd go back to what they did in Sony. You'd go back to cyber because it's hard to attribute to them. We're incredibly vulnerable. They're not vulnerable since they only have five computers and about 20 IP addresses in the entire country. That's an understatement but not much of an understatement. I'm not sure that we're looking at the right North Korean threat. Interesting. Corey. 
alligator watch. Ah, wow. All the good ones have already been taken. How about the collapse of the Iran deal? Uh, either by the imposition of new sanctions by the United States, which gives Iran a precipitating cause, especially if a hardliner gets elected president in the Iranian presidential election, gives Iran a justification to back out of the Iranian deal. Well, that's a really interesting one. And I think, you know, there are there are others looming out there, including a terrorist attack someplace, including some kind of natural disaster or something else that, that, that has an impact. Uh, but I think the one that's under our nose that we keep uh, underplaying, and we may be growing a little accustomed to it, is the Russia scandal here in the United States, which you know, is taking some interesting turns with further throwing Flynn under the bus. Uh, He's and been under the bus. They're just sort of rolling the bus back just and backing forth. backing the bus over and going forward. But, Not uh, using the documents to the, to the oversight committee, though. Yeah. So they are protecting him. Well, they, you know, they're pro- or they're protecting, they're protecting someone. Yeah. Right. yeah. And, and, and I the, see you gentlemen the argument. Right. Because the issue here is who knew what when. And I think that, the, you know, this thing is likely to get deepen and in the next hundred days. And that's a that's a problem as well. Well, it's something to look forward to. Of course, for all of us here at the ER, what it does is it gives us plenty to talk about. And we look forward to doing it. With some luck, Corey will come back from Berlin. With some luck, California will be there when she gets back from Berlin. <laughs> um, uh, and we will continue to work to energize our army of nerds. I did see a number of you had did send, you know, tweets towards Sebastian Gorka to try to get blocked in waves of winning a mug. And please, you know, continue. I think Sebastian Gorka deserves all the harassment that he can get. And as I mentioned earlier, by the way, we are working beyond mugs to uh, to the next stage uh, in all of this, which will include a, a fantastic deep state sweatshirt a la a college called Deep State, which we think is good. There may be Deep State Cafe mugs, too. But I'm, I'm going to give a chance for you to win the very first of these sweatshirts, which will be, I don't know, ready in a month or so. Uh, the, the, we have the motto of the deep state, uh, alleged deep state university, which is in Latin, which is nos sunt informus molum. That's nos sunt informus molum. And the first person who can come up with the correct translation of the motto of deep state, you, you know, our, our, our secret university here in the heart of, of the elite, and tell us what nos sunt informus molum is supposed to mean, we'll get the first sweatshirt. So that gives you something to work on. Uh, That's in, great, David. Okay. <laughs> that gives you something, something to work on, everybody. Um, and uh, we look forward to hearing it. And, of course, the translation has to be the intended and correct translation. In the interim, thank you, Corey. Come home safely. Thank you, David. Thank you, Keith. And we'll join you again in a few days on the next ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. 
the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.